I'm Kate. I'm Callie. We're two friends who met in an early modern history MA. Welcome to the Six Queens podcast, where queenship reigns supreme. Well, happy new year, everyone. Um, We currently are in 2022, but you will be listening to this on January 1st. 2023 so happy new year to all of you happy new year this time traveling thing does stress me out a little bit no we just got our christmas tree the other day but you all already are over christmas <laughs> <laughs> i hope the turkey was good and the presents were good or whatever it was that you did um, everybody had a lovely lovely festive break no who didn't have a lovely festive season in 1540 1541 Tell us, Kate, who could that possibly be? Anne of Cleves. Uh, we talked about this a little bit on our holiday session last year, but Anne of Cleves potentially had one of the worst New Year's in ever, because this was the time when she met Henry, and as we probably know, it didn't go well, and it ended up just being a very, very awkward first week of the year, 1541. This is definitely not a good one for anyone involved, but as um, especially Anne and the repercussions of what happens on uh, this fateful day in 1540 um, don't end up being too good for Cromwell either. It just wasn't a good day for anyone involved, uh, you know, at least so Anne, because she had no idea what was going on. She's in this new country. She doesn't speak English. She doesn't understand any of the customs or anything. This is like the first time that she's come out of her room, basically no idea how awkward it actually was. But I think the interesting thing that we found when we were researching this was just how much unknown there is about what actually happened. Like, I think everyone can agree that whatever happened on January 1st, 1541 was awkward. However, we just don't know exactly what happened to make it awkward. And that's what we're kind of going to be unpacking in this episode. It's just... We all know that Anne and Henry met, and Henry didn't like what he saw. But I guess trying to figure out what exactly that was that turned Henry off, but then also the repercussions of it and how it unfolded, because a few days after they met on January 1st, they still got married. So what were those few days like, and what was all of that drama like? Because I think it's such an interesting story and it's such like a cute neat little story that it's been retold so often and we get all of these like you know little tropey kind of side narratives like no henry never called her to play or he never compared her to a horse that kind of stuff it just it, let, it blows out of proportion and we lose the nuances of what actually happened and then most importantly what anne's experiences actually were it's an interesting one because for as much as I think we can see Anne here, we don't know much about her. You know, we were talking before we, we hit the record button saying, you know, Hall's quite a flatterer here. But then you've got um, um, Edward Hall, the chronicler, sorry, um, is very much a flatterer of this situation and of Anne. And then you've got other people that subscribe fully to the idea that, you know, he said, like you said, like he, she was a horse, like she really smelled, like she was unattractive. There's a lot of confusion. And I think that's where we lose Anne in that confusion. She becomes like the character in a story and a caricature of a historic figure. I'm thinking like 
in horrible histories when Henry is singing about her and really the only thing you get out of it is that she's ugly and you're like as a historian there has to be more than that and I mean Henry is the kind of egotistical shallow person where it is possible there might not be more more than that but actually the the story is much more nuanced than we think and I think the sources have a lot to do here this is a weird one I think that we really need to do that because other we have nothing you know short of having Anne writing a diary to just be like this day was horrid this man is who is this man why was why was he dressed weirdly trying to kiss me at Rochester like what is Rochester where is Rochester what country am I in we we have no other way of kind of even having her visible here so I think let's start out with what we do know you know like let's tell the story narratively kind of based on the bare bones of the facts that we do know so if you listen to the episode right before this you'll know that Anne went through this kind of screening vetting process wherein her marriage to Henry was arranged and then if you listen to the second episode of this series you'll know that Anne had this almost procession to England from her home in Cleves and then she crossed the English Channel and did make it to England and the crowds went wild she was so well received and though there were some people who were maybe a little bit let down by how kind of modest and demure she was most people agreed that she seemed very nice and very elegant and very pretty and I think that everyone was just excited to see the future Queen of England they had been almost two years without the Queen of England so at this point let's see her you know like we're the suspense is killing us here so there was so much excitement surrounding her that nobody really there no red flags were raised let's say you know there, everyone was pretty into her and that's where we're picking up Anne's story she arrived into England in late December and by New Year's Eve 1540 so January 31st she's coming into Rochester in Kent and she's on her way basically to London where she's supposed to meet Henry and then they're going to get married in this very lavish court ceremony and at this point Anne's been traveling for weeks she's surrounded by people who she has no idea what they're saying she's going through all these ceremonies she's having to wait for weather so that she can cross the English Channel safely and she must have been just really exhausted and so as we pick up with her story now keep all of that in mind. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, how, how much jet lag, uh, how much jet lag is too much jet lag uh, for, for one person to have to deal with? I can barely come back from the UK without being out of commission for like four days because of jet lag. So I cannot imagine having to spend what, three weeks on horseback and like waiting for ships and then being seasick and constantly being greeted by all these people who are speaking in tongues and kissing my hand. I'm, I just... it's, uh, nobody's putting their best foot forward in this situation, let's be honest. So on New Year's Eve 1540, Anne arrives in Rochester. She is received once again with this like very nice welcoming ceremony. But she's actually in England now, so a lot of people are you know welcoming their future queen. It's a really big deal. She's staying in the Bishop's Palace in Rochester, which, you know, befits her station. It's a nice place to stay. And she's running a little bit behind schedule. So she actually ends up spending the holiday, New Year's Day, in the palace in Rochester. As we talked about on last year's holiday special, uh, Christmas in Tudor England lasted for 12 days, and New Year's Day was kind of 
the one in the middle of the days. And it was a really big deal because it was, there were lots of celebrations, but it was also when uh, you gave and received gifts, especially like big sort of political courtly gifts. So Anne is actually passing this very important holiday in the palace in Rochester. But a few hundred miles away in Greenwich, outside of London, Henry is getting pretty antsy because he's spending the holiday that he was supposed to be spending with his new wife alone. And he just getting very impatient. And now that she's so close, I don't think he can help himself. Um, he, he is insanely curious. I think the old romantic in Henry comes out at this point. Oh, it certainly does. I mean, Henry is a romantic. He's a product of this sort of quasi-medieval renaissance um, courtly love thing. I mean, before he leaves Greenwich to go see Anne in Rochester, because, yeah, he, he can't stand it any longer, he tells Cromwell that being apart won't work, that he needs to, quote, nourish his love. Two years is a very long time for him to be by himself, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, no, he's going insane. And he's, yeah, he's a product of this game of courtly love where, you know, he's the the ideal sort of King Arthur king and he's about to go woo this fair maiden who will be his queen and Robin Hood and Maid Marian and like all of that kind of like storybook romance, fairy tale stuff. Henry is super into that. And in his own mind, he sees this playing out as a love story, like a, a high romance. And that's not going to be achieved if they're organizing all of these very formal greeting ceremonies and if Henry's having to wait and twiddle his thumbs in Greenwich because Cromwell says so. It's not conducive to nourishing love. <laughs> I want that on a t-shirt. Well, it's in our modern world, it's seen as such a feminine thing, right? Like, I mean, now that it's the holiday season, we're used to seeing all those millions of movies about women who go to some random European country for Christmas and end up being seduced by the prince, and it's this beautiful fairy tale romance story. Okay, reverse that now. It's actually Henry who wants the fairy tale romance story for Christmas. We we need to add this movie to our our holiday tradition of a Netflix like cheesy Christmas movie. But that's the, the thing that Henry's going for is, um, I think we've mentioned it before on the show, but um, courtly love is such an important ritual in the English court, not just the English court, but, you know, there. It is this idea of showing love for somebody in this very, like, pure, idealistic way, um, you know, giving favors during tournaments and writing poems to each other. And it can be very chaste. I mean, not to say that the English court was chaste by any means. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's it's this ritualized, it's like a play. It's like there should be movie cameras around. And Henry totally is into that. And it's something that Anna Please has had zero exposure to. Yeah, I think courtly love does, does something that Henry, that appeals to Henry and it puts him in the limelight. So like you say, like these the, a lot of the time the ritual of courtly love is a very public thing and we know how much um, he loves he loves being in the limelight you you hit the nail on the head there really um it, it does a very good job very very early on of displaying 
how, by Henry's standards, unsophisticated Anne is. Yeah, so Henry, feeling a little bit um, nervous about this and impatient about this, he rides off to go see Anne in Rochester. And he rolls the movie cameras in the sense that he decides that they're going to make a big deal of this. And he and a bunch of attendants, so like his friends and maybe some members of his privy council, actually ride to Rochester in disguise. They're wearing these like multicolored cloaks, these really like garish outfits, and they're riding with their hoods up so no one can see who they are. And they ride to Rochester with the idea that they're going to slip into Anne's chambers and she's going to have no idea what's going on and she's going to be so surprised and how fun does this sound? I I think Anne has every right to be like, what on earth is going on? Who are all these people? Why are they here? Henry's idea in all of this, though, is a little bit more than just surprise and shock value, though. So in his courtly love fantasy, the idea is that if two people are truly in love, then the love will transcend disguise. Anne was at the palace in Rochester. It was New Year's Day, and there was some entertainment going on in the courtyard for her outside her room. So at the time, it was a good old-fashioned bull baiting. She was preoccupied with watching that from her window when all of a sudden this guy comes in. It's Anthony Brown, who's the master of the horse, one of Henry's best friends. And he says, oh, hi, um, someone is here to deliver a New Year's gift for you from the king. And she says, okay, fine, show him in. And unbeknownst to her, the man who comes in to give her the gift is actually Henry. But he's not dressed as himself. He's still wearing this disguise. And he starts talking to her and kind of flirting with her. She has no idea what's going on because she doesn't speak English. She's trying to watch the bull baiting outside because that's far more interesting than this random servant giving her a present. Henry, all of a sudden, is trying to get her attention and he starts to, like, embrace her. He kind of jumps on her a little bit and starts declaring his love for her. And she has no idea what's going on. To the point where she actually kind of, like, backs away from him a little bit towards the window and continues to show more interest in the bull dating than in him. And the the sort of enduring description of this moment that is like one of the common things throughout all the sources is that she seemed very like indifferent to him. She had no idea what was going on. So whether it's confusion or what, or maybe she just preferred to be watching the entertainment outside, she was just not into the moment. But more importantly for Henry, she didn't know it was him. She had no clue. I mean, the ego is something else. Just been like, why did you know it was me? You know, potentially there was in a portrait of me, you know, may have been given a brief description of what I look like. But, you know, again, you've been traveling for nearly two weeks solid. So how dare you not realize who I am? <laughs> and even by their standards, like, you can see very quickly how this game could go wrong. Because... When you think about pageants, like, you know, think of, like, the famous one that Anne Boleyn was part of, the Chateau Vert pageant, which in a lot of Tudor drama is sort of used as kind of the point where Henry first sees Anne, and they dance and fall in love, and it's magical. That's the kind of thing that Henry has in mind here. That's what he wants to happen. But the difference is that that pageant was choreographed, and everyone knew what was going on. <laughs> you know, I think if she was outwardly annoyed and maybe even shouted at him, that would have interested him more than the display of indifference that she had of just being like, what is going on? 
yeah, as I say, like irony of all ironies, her her stepping away from him till she can catch her breath and work out what on earth is going on is the thing that the the final nail in the coffin of this very, very brief encounter. And he's decided at this point, actually, you're done. I've had enough. He actually retreats to the next room and he gets out of his disguise and he puts on something more kingly, like I think something purple you know, to denote royal staff. And so when he comes back into the room and people start to show deference to him, Anne suddenly has that panic moment of like, oh crap, this is this is him. And she puts all the dots together. And again, accounts of what her reaction differ. But the one that seems likeliest to me comes from Edward Hall when he says that she realized her mistake and all of a sudden she was showing all this deference to him. She got down on her knees and bowed to him and welcomed him into her chamber as best she could, you know, you know, not being able to understand him. So she's not dumb. Like, she realized her mistake at some point. But at the same time, I think you've got to feel for her because it's almost though he was setting her up to fail. Though not intentionally, like, it is part of the courtly love experience. But it's almost as though she's been set up to fail at the first hurdle because she's just not part of that world. And this is where the sources get interesting because in researching what happened in this moment, a lot of the primary sources say different things. So like we've been talking a lot about Edward Hall, who was writing about Anne's procession into England and her wedding and all of this stuff. And Edward Hall writes very flatteringly that word about Anne, um, you know, how beautiful she was. And he even says that she was dressed in English fashion. So she was trying to assimilate into English culture. So by his accounts, she really didn't do anything wrong other than she just maybe misstepped in this little courtly love ritual. Whereas all the other sources suddenly paint Anne as this stupid, sheltered, ugly woman. Like, all of Henry's friends who were there with him, like Anthony Brown and then another man named Lord Russell, who were both Henry's friends, after the fact, they both were like, oh yeah, we walked into the room and we're like, oh wow, she's nothing like her picture. And um, they say that she was wearing really ugly clothes. She was wearing very sort of bulky clothes in, quote, the Dutch fashion, as opposed to the English fashion with like the square neckline and the French hoods. And so you, from their accounts, you see kind of where Henry was justified in not liking her. Like, it becomes much more simplistic than this misunderstanding happened. And it suddenly just becomes like, Henry walked in and thought that she looked bad. And, you know, she smelled or whatever. In reality, is sort of his bubble was burst. And it seems to me, reading between the lines, that Anne's, you know, the thing that didn't make her attractive was less so her actual, like, facial features and more so her kind of indifference to the whole shebang um you know maybe because she was tired maybe just because she didn't understand it and them we don't need combination of that we don't know but it seems to me that that's what henry wasn't attracted to because if you think of somebody like anne boleyn by all accounts she was not the most stunning person like a lot of people actually write how they would never think that henry would go for someone like her because she was not conventionally beautiful but she was still attractive in the sense that she was alluring and she knew how to, you know, get somebody to fall in love with her. Whereas Anne was just kind of standing there. 
through no fault of her own because that's how she had been raised and she was in a completely overwhelming situation. But you can see how that didn't fit into Henry's beautiful love story that he envisioned for himself. And so I guess in order to justify that further, the story then becomes that she's ugly and that's the version that gets passed down to us, you know, through the through the ages. After the first time Henry met Anne, he just screams at Cromwell to the effect of, I like her not, but I like her even less now. Whether or not that was said in exactly that way or, you know, whatever, it definitely hammers home how unhappy he was. January 2nd, Henry is back in London. He's had this awful meeting with Anne of Cleves, and his bubble is completely burst. He likes her not, and he calls in Thomas Cromwell, who is the architect of this marriage, and he basically says, okay, so how are you going to fix it? And Cromwell's like, I, I don't know what to do, because he still believes in this alliance. They really want a German alliance for all the reasons we explained in the last episode. And besides, you, you've, they've signed a contract that they can't get out of mere days before the wedding. Like, they've gone to all this expense to get the girl here, so you kind of have to marry her now. Henry doesn't want to actually hear this, though, so he spends the next few days moping around Greenwich, basically. And he keeps asking for people's opinions. Like, at one point, he talks to somebody who received Anne in Dover, and he's like, you know how you said she was great? Did you actually think that? Or were you just trying to like get me excited? You know, he just, he actually starts to talk to people about how unhappy he is. And the word kind of spreads that he isn't really going to go through with this. And he's actively looking for ways out. In fact, he calls his lawyers in and he looks for any kind of loopholes or chinks in the contract that could potentially get him out of this. He's done and Anne of Cleves has been in the country for like what a week two weeks and it's already come to this like you were saying it's it's an impossible position to get out of at this point there is there is no way out and I think you know legalities aside Cromwell's back when Cromwell banging his head against a wall we're like what I can't keep doing this with you the marriage needs to go ahead as a faith-saving exercise for Henry and for England because where else are you going to get a bride on such short notice and who's going to want to marry you after, you know, you get to England and then you decide you don't like her? It's not going to happen. So at this point, we just got to go through the tunnel, friend. And deep down, Henry knows that and he knows that Cromwell is right, that they cannot get out of the contract now and they've spent so much money on all the processions and the pageantry getting Anne here and not to mention the wedding that's going to happen in a few days that he he recognizes that it's it's too late now in fact he says to one of his advisors if I had known so much before she had no coming hither but what remedy now I think it's interesting and funny that he ultimately accepts his fate you know woe is me I have to marry this person but he reminds everyone like he goes into martyr mode of like I'm doing this for you guys, you know, but I don't want, if I was any other person, I wouldn't go through with it, but I still am because I'm that guy. 
<laughs> I'm that solid friend. I'm doing this for England. <laughs> Meanwhile, though, Anne of Cleves, I think, is probably, even if she picked up on how awkward their first meeting was, which she must have, I think she's kind of blissfully unaware of how far it's going. To most people at the time, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to break up. Like, that is not the the end of all. So Anne is still on the procession. She's still being greeted as the Queen of England. Some chroniclers are picking up on the fact that Henry doesn't necessarily want this to go forward because all of the accounts of how radiant she is have stopped, except for Edward Hall. He must have missed the memo. Because remember, Henry wasn't <laughs> supposed to see her so early. He jumped the schedule a little bit. And so she's still on her procession on her way into London. And then there's going to be a formal reception right before she gets to London, like on the outskirts of the city. And that's where Henry and Anne will, quote, meet for the first time. And it'll be this beautiful, <laughs> lovely, romantic moment. And most of the people there, not the courtiers maybe, but all the people who are like lining the procession route don't necessarily know what's happened already. So they're still part of this beautiful, romantic love story that's happening. So Anne arrives on the outskirts of London on January 3rd, and she's going through this welcoming ceremony. Um, it's a bit of the field of cloth of gold because there's this beautiful, like, pavilion erected made of gold cloth, and everything is beautiful, and everyone's bedecked in their finest jewels. Anne is wearing this beautiful gown um, in the Dutch style, apparently, but that shows off her beauty. Like, no one really mentions how ugly it is just that it's a different style than the english style and she's meeting all of the higher courtiers who she hasn't met yet so among these are some of the most noble ladies that'll be in her household like margaret douglas the king's niece and by edward hall's account she does a good job <laughs> she doesn't necessarily understand it again because she doesn't speak a ton of English but there is somebody to interpret for her and she makes like this little speech of thanks if you will that is um, relayed to the people through the interpreter so yeah they, they all seem to like her enough it's just the one person we need to like her Just it, he just won't do it to his credit, though, and I don't give him much credit on the show, but I will hear, Henry never publicly showed whatever feelings he was feeling. Henry never showed anything but politeness and deference towards her. Like, he wasn't going to, he wasn't yelling, I like her not, in Anne's face, you know? Like, he was still very respectful. So when he arrives for this sort of official meet and greet outside of London, it's exactly as planned you know he shows her great deference he kisses her hand they're this beautiful couple they're wearing these splendid outfits like henry's wearing cloth of gold and a coat that's studded with diamonds and rubies and pearls like they are the picture perfect couple and henry's doing nothing to ruin that picture it's just that in private the lawyers are working overtime to see how we can get henry out of this and i mean in a weird way it's probably the most traditional marriage in that in terms of like arranged marriages that we can probably see for Henry. You know, again, it's not a love match, but there's a lot of like kind of respect going on there. Um, and you're you're there to do a job basically. A marriage is uh, is ex for all intents and purposes for raw marriages um, is is a job. Um, they've just both got to get it done. I was just about to say the irony of this marriage is how 
public and stereotypical it is of royal marriages because we're going to talk about this more in next week's episode uh, when we talk about all of Henry's other weddings. But the difference between those weddings, <laughs> those five weddings and this wedding is that this was definitely the most public ceremony, wedding ceremony that Henry underwent with any of his queens. And of course, the irony being that this is the one more of all of them that he wished he didn't have to go through, but it's the one that everyone was invited in co to court to witness. So you kind of have to go through with it. Because contrary to what we in 2022 think of when we think of a royal wedding, I mean, like, close your eyes and, you know, you see Charles and Diana, right, in this big televised spectacle. Weddings for them were actually a lot more private, like there would be a private religious service and public meaning that there were lots of courtiers there. So with Anne of Cleves, because it's this big diplomatic marriage, you want people there to celebrate. So there are people in, you know, Anne's retinue, like people who are representing her brother and the other officials of Cleves. Um, they're being married by the Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Cranmer, and then all of Henry's big noblemen are there. Um, you know, like his niece, Lady Margaret Douglas, um, his son and his daughter-in-law, his daughters. They're all the premier noblemen and women are here to witness this marriage. It's not just like some quiet little thing happening over here in the king's private chapel. It's a big court function. Again, we'll talk about this more next week, but this is much different than any of his other marriages. And I think that I fact must have been kind of looming over the marriage for Henry was not only do I have to go through with it, I have to be seen by all of these people and I have to look happy when I've been complaining about this in private. And pretty much everyone here knows that I've been complaining about it, except maybe Anne. <laughs> Bless her. Um, I have a question for you because I will, it's one I always kind of think about with this situation. Do we think that the, the public nature of this marriage in particular was deliberate, you know, potentially engineered by Cromwell, um, the Dukes of Cleves, to kind of send a very clear message to the rest of Europe about where England's alliances lie, or do you just think it just happened? I think it was engineered that way because this is a diplomatic marriage. So yeah, of course, Cromwell and the Duke of Cleves were like, this is going to be lavish. I mean, if you look at the details of the wedding, like the wedding clothes, for example, that, uh, that Anne and Henry are wearing, it's a deliberate move to show them off as very wealthy monarchs. They're both wearing cloth of gold. They're both wearing like every jewel they possess all in their clothing. Anne is in this headdress, apparently, that's like dripping with pearls and her hair is down all the way to the floor. I mean, it looks really good. So, yeah, I think if you're going to go to all of that trouble to dress up your people and show how important and notable this marriage is, you got to have people there to see it. The marriage happens on January 6th. And by all accounts, it's like, it's a really great day. The marriage ceremony goes really well. Um, Henry and Anne are married in a ceremony by Archbishop Cranmer. Uh, Anne's wedding ring actually has her motto in it. God send me well to keep is written inside of her ring, which is a lovely little touch. And then Henry and Anne go off together and they hear a mass 
But then there's like a little reception and later on in the day there's a banquet and there's entertainment and feasting and everyone has a really great time. It's a party. I just say I think for this wedding it's probably a good job it was at Christmas when there was lots of wine and lots of people about just yeah if you're gonna have to have a celebration you might as well do it when everyone's there anyway and when everyone's already been partying for days I've always wondered though and like you said in the first half of the episode there's no way we could ever know this or probably even guess it so maybe it's stupid for me to speculate but what is Anne thinking in all of this? Because Henry's in private has not been shy about voicing his displeasure. And all of these lawyers are working in Cromwell's probably like at the wedding, but pale, you know, thinking like, Oh God, what if it's wrong? And what if this all falls apart? Anne must have sensed something like maybe even if she didn't guess to what extent Henry was displeased, she at least must have known that something was going on. Like the account of Anne is that she's very kind of naive and sheltered so that she had no idea. And she was just merrily going through all of this thinking, great, I'm the queen now. And like we've been saying, she's been traveling for like a month at this point. She must've just been so out of it and exhausted. But part of me has to think that she was not so naive, that she wasn't picking up on some of the discomfort in the room, you know? I think she probably did, but at the same time, you know, she's she's moved to a whole new country. She's also trying to contend with getting married and just trying to navigate a whole new world. You know, I think partly some of her feeling may have been, let's just get through all of this. Let's just get this wedding out. Not out of the way, because, you know. But yeah, let's just get this done and then we can settle in and then maybe fix everything else and kind of get to know him. I just, that's a lot going on for her. So maybe maybe she was aware of it and then thinking, let's deal with this later down the line or I don't know how to fix this because... She's never been given the tools to know how to fix it. And I can see how she wouldn't be completely alarmed by the situation just because she probably never would have guessed that she made such a bad mistake that the whole marriage would be called off. And Henry was doing a good job of keeping all of his comments in private. Like he was talking to a lot of people, but at least it was never in front of her or anyone who was representing her brother. It's it's that thing I think we've spoken about so many times at the the public and the private face of the monarch. He is a master of that. I'm not sure when we're gonna be picking up the story, to be quite honest, um, because this series is just sort of origins. So we're kind of just getting you to the point where these six women become queen. So at this point, Anne of Cleves is now Queen of England, and by her, from where she stands, all is as it should be. I don't. I, I know we all know what happens next, so it's not like I'm going to spoil anything by saying that by the end of the year, Anne will no longer be Queen of England. We will pick up the story at some point. Uh, you know, we'll go through the ins and outs of this annulment of Henry's marriage like maybe we'll do a divorce court again like we did for Catherine of Aragon but just for now leaving her here you can see how weird it feels because on one hand you have Henry who is still even though he's married now trying to get out of it and trying to find any loophole possible 
And then you have Anne, who's kind of blissfully unaware of how far things are going to go. Even if she does pick up on some discomfort, she has no idea what's about to happen. Like, and how could she? So it's an awkward place to leave you all, but it is where we have to leave you all. And I always like to do a bit of Mythbusters with Anna Cleves because she does have the enduring reputation of being the ugly one. Um, like we said, the horrible history song where, you know, she looks like a horse. She didn't, though. And it just it's one of those episodes that I think we needed to do. Like, this is one of those from the very beginning when we were first coming up with our ideas for the show. We were like, we need to do an episode where we talk about what actually happened with Anna Cleves and how. Not that it wasn't not her fault, because she definitely could have handled the situation better, but also it was a really hard situation to handle better. It was a catch-22. So I just think it's really important for us to acknowledge what actually happened and what actually made Anne unattractive to Henry, as opposed to just being like, looking at her portrait and trying to figure out, you know, why she was seen as unattractive physically it's much more nuanced than that and the sources are so ambiguous about it and they differ so much that it's just really important for us to underscore this of it's complicated we don't really know no as as is always the case there is far more to the story than initially meets the eye i think Anne's had a lot of reputational damage just purely on her physical appearance and you know when you think about Anne the first thing that does come to mind is is the painting or, you know, the I like her not, she looks like a horse, you know, the mare of Flanders, like whatever it is, that is the enduring image that we have of her, not of somebody who is travel-worn, you know, sheltered, like entering a whole new way of life. That That's very seldom taken into account. It's becoming more, more the kind of, kind of creeping its way into the, narratives around Anna Cleves but for such a long time it was oh she was a foreign princess Henry didn't like her on to Catherine Howard that's really I think kind of Anne's origin story for her queenship is just where did it go wrong how did it go wrong and figuring out how she wasn't actually at fault really Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Six Queens. On the next episode, Callie and I will have a look at the private weddings between Henry and his queens. In the meantime, you can follow us on social media, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and we'd love to hear from you, so please leave a review on your favorite podcast app. Long live the queens!